And a check, one, two, three. Hello, hello, hello. Bup, bup, uh, that sound Thank better you. to yep. you? Okay, yep. cheers. And I know nothing about sound, so that's complicated. Nice, that's great for a radio show. <laughs> Yeah. So we're sitting here at um, Bernie Labage's house. I don't really know Bernie, except that I've, I've I've actually corresponded with you for a number of years. Yes, we have. Um, I know that you're a musician. I know you work, do a lot of studio work. I know you've played in a lot of bands. And then you, then you do know me. Yeah, it's yeah. a pretty impressive resume. Oh, thank you. So we're going to start at the very beginning. Okay. Um, tell me how you first got into playing the guitar. Uh, be the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. I'm no different than a million other guys. That was it for me. And I saw George in the background throwing in these little licks and I hear the girls screaming and I said, I, I'd like to do that. At that moment? like you just... At that very moment, I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. From that moment to you getting the guitar and mm -hmm. learning to play, and, and tell me about that process well, I grew up in a you know semi-musical family. Nobody was doing it for for a living or anything, but we had a piano in the house. Both of my sisters played. My mom uh, was a singer when she was younger. My dad wasn't in the field, but had great taste in music, and uh, so I heard a lot of old stuff, great old tunes like uh, you know show tunes and um, jazz and and all sorts of stuff. So I loved music. It was always around the house, and we sang three-part harmonies to Everly Brothers tunes or, or that kind of stuff. With, I have an older sister who is she born in, uh, she's eight years older than I am, and then another one who's five years older than I am. Then I've got one who is seven years younger than I am. But the two oldest sisters, my oldest sister, Marilyn, was a Motown freak. And when Motown first came out, she got every one of the singles and we lived down in the basement of our parents house and with our little Seabreeze portable player and she would play those songs a million times in a row over and over and over we would write the lyrics on the chalkboard and and everything else and I just sort of by osmosis just sitting there as a little kid I listened to all those tunes and loved them and uh, then when the Beatles came around my middle sister Gail was the Beatles freak. So at that point, I it was perfect because she would buy the records and I would get to learn how to play the guitar <laughs> to them. So uh, that's basically how that connected. You know, my just somehow talked my parents into taking me for lessons and uh, I took lessons for six months. And then uh, one day, uh, the uh, guitar teacher pulled out the Mel Bay book that I was learning from and um, Santa Lucia was the next one on the list. And meanwhile, I had been running around town trying to find out what the sound was on Satisfaction by the Stones. What was that guitar sound? You know, and they were, one of my buddies is going, well, there's a guy down the street there. He says, uh, it's, it's called a distortionator. That's what uh, is on that song. So I'm running around uh, in the music store asking all these teachers that are wearing suits and ties and whatever, do you know what a distortionator is? And meanwhile, they open up the book and they want me to play Santa Lucia. And at that point, I went, I think I got to take this uh, away myself and uh, learn what I want to learn. Rather and how did than... you go about learning these things without the lessons? Just playing the oh, records? Oh, I play by ear. Well, then that would be because uh, my, sis 
my sisters playing the piano and uh, I'd go down like they'd, they'd be struggling, struggling with their uh, piano lessons for the day and uh, I would just be sitting there and then they would go upstairs and I would go to the piano and I would play it better than they did and then they would come down and beat me up so that that was a daily routine <laughs> so um so that's how i learned i have a really good ear and that's what's got me through life well i'm curious to find out when you watched the beatles on tv okay. and said that's what i want to do yes to starting to play in a band at that point when you started playing with this band did you know what being a full-time musician meant and what that i was thinking about last that last night when I was thinking about you coming over to talk to me today and I knew that that would come up and I, I'm trying to think of how that worked. Like, I just was going to do it. There was no, I didn't really think about it. I just knew that there were bands out there and I, I was going to be in some of them and I was just going to play. And the economics? Like whether the economics. Whether one could make a living doing this or well, not? That, no, that involved living at home for a long time. I was still going to school. I was in high right, school. Right. Yeah, so... Uh, and then uh, when I turned 16, yeah, I moved out of the house and uh, had a, a, a band which was an offshoot of the Royal Bank, and we called it STEM. I put it together, so it was myself and Johnny Johnson who had discovered me. He, was, uh, he became the lead singer, like the Robert Plant guy. I became the Jimmy Page guy. And uh, we got a great drummer, and um, I guess we had a bass Yes, we had a bass player too, so four-piece band a la Led Zeppelin, and then we just turned up to 10 and, and went. But I was practicing down my basement constantly. I practiced all the time. I listened to records and lifted licks. And the most important part of my growing up musically before I became professional, because I still haven't answered your question, was uh, there was a music store that opened in um, Burlington called Music Village. And uh, my friend and I were walking down the street saw this guy loading records into a uh, into a store one night and just walked in started talking to him to him and uh he was a lot older than me i'm just trying to think of the year that that would be because like things like uh like hendrix had just come out so it has to be 67 so mm -hmm. um i was 14 so then so i hung around that store and played hooky all the time and that's where i basically learn my Lex was learning hearing these new records having the opportunity to either sit there and try to learn them or they would lend me the record I'd go down stairs and learn how to play so that's how I got but that. I presume but like anybody to be good at anything you just have to spend a lot of time that and, is right and if you're passionate about your guitar playing then spending seven hours and not going to school didn't yeah. matter because that's all you did right? that's what I planned on doing and I was thinking last night of sitting in school and just being a jerk when I was, you know, 15 years old. And I was a really good student at one point, and then I just, you know, decided I wanted to play the guitar. And then one day uh, the teacher said, Bernie, you uh, stay after class. And, uh, and she, I liked her, and she liked me. She was a great teacher. And I sat down, but I was just a punk at that point. And she goes, uh, why don't you just quit school? She was trying to frighten me or whatever, and I just looked her right in the eye, and I just went, because I'm not 16. Like, I just went, that day is coming, and then I'm going to leave. And I blew her mind by saying that because she was expecting to it to go the other way and straighten me out or whatever. But I knew I wanted to do this, so it was not an option. Wow. Yeah. And then, do you think, can you recall what doing this meant? Like, did it mean 
being a rock star? Did it mean making a living playing music? Do you know? have any idea? I don't know. And I still have this feeling to this day. Like, it, it's not anything to do with being on stage. I love playing in a group. I just love that clicking with guys and playing a song and having it sound like that song or stretching it out and getting to solo and having guys behind me that are sort of knowing where I'm going or taking me somewhere else or that kind of thing. So it was like um, the camera, like I grew up with three sisters and myself. So here all of a sudden I've got a family of four guys, five guys, three guys, whatever it is. And we're like a little, it's like we're in the army or something to me. Like when my, I was thinking how weird it was that my parents were completely appalled by me being in a band back then because of all the uh, rumors of, uh, you know, bad crap that we would be doing or whatever. <laughs> and uh, meanwhile, like the if if I had not been in a band and I was hanging down at the park in Burlington, It'd I be would worse. have been way, way worse shape than I am now. So, uh, yeah, so that anyway, turned out to be some sort of a little bubble I was in, you know. So I was, I was safer than uh, they would have assumed, but it took me 40 years to kind of figure that out. So I just loved that camaraderie. I love the camaraderie, and it was. I had a, uh, a couple of uh, things that kept me going. One was I, I had to have fun because there's very little money in it unless you manage to do something that pays money, but it's not for the money that you start it. I wanted to have fun, and I wanted to accomplish something uh, at the end of the night. With, like We did a gig, and we played these songs, and people danced and clapped and had a good time, and we laughed all the way to the gig and back and and uh, you know got dressed up and tuned up and played. It's just a... I can't describe the feeling, but I still get it now. Wow. Can you yeah. tell me... Was there ever a point where you didn't get that? Like, was there ever a point yeah. where you just thought, you know what, this isn't what I thought it would be? Like, this. Well, the, as I get older, the uh, it's not that the thrill of playing diminishes, but the um, connection between the audience and myself, whether it's in my mind or it's an actual fact, hits me because there's an age gap now that I'm not part of that I loved being part of a, of this scene I was like the same age as the crowd for so so long and um, now if I wanted to do that I would be probably playing in places that I don't really want to frequent at this point in my life and I'm not knocking anybody over the age of 50 but I like I liked it when I was young and playing like that was great so um, if there was anything that doesn't give me that feeling it would be that you know lugging gear for the millionth time up a set of stairs and starting a song with excellent players and there's two rooms in the place because they're having a convention and the second you start playing they all walk into the other room and <laughs> you're playing to an empty hall and you know two weeks before you were playing at Massey Hall with the same guys or making a record or doing jingles or whatever so it's that disconnect thing that I that bothers me and takes the fun out of it for me. And I have to have fun. My second thing that kept me going and motivated me was uh, that I always strived to be the worst guy in the band. That hmm. was my <laughs> motto, right? And I think other people have said that since, but I made that up myself. So, um, And I searched for things like that. So that got me out of Burlington, and I, I went down to the States for a little while, came back, 
and lived in Hamilton, and there were some really good players there. But then I, I started being the the big kid on the block in Hamilton then, and then but I they saw no result for that, so I had to move to Toronto. Right. And that was all my all my decisions. It's just that's where the scene was. Dominic Torano lived in Toronto, so that was good enough for me. So I tried to go there and be in, in that world, and uh, that worked out magnificently for me, I'm happy to say. What would have been the turning point once you moved here? When I moved to Toronto, the turning point was living in Hamilton and deciding that um, I was going to put a, a, a band together of really good guys, and I was going to go out and scout guys. I didn't care where they were from, but I was going to go out and check out a whole bunch of bands all over the place and just make up my dream band and then uh, get on the telephone and try to coax them out of <laughs> or into quitting the band they were in and joining a band with a guy they probably had never met or heard of before. But I was going to buy a truck and we were going to do this and I had an agent and uh, so that was it, possibly the best band I ever ha had put together and that was called Stingery. And if you have to spell it, it's S-T-I-N-G-A-R-E-E. -E. And uh, that was me and Brian McLeod, rest his soul, and uh, Jeff Jones, who ended up in Red Rider. And, and then we had a piano player named Larry Hamill and a drummer named Skip Layton, who ended up playing with Chilliwack. And I didn't know these guys were going to end up being famous and happy doing what they were doing, but I saw them. They blew my mind. I knew exactly what I wanted to see in the band. Like, I'd already picked out the set list. I wanted a dual guitars, dueling uh, solos kind of thing. And Brian McLeod was just fantastic. Was this that. mainly covers or was it Yeah, original? they were covers, but they were obscure covers, like by Orleans and, and mm -hmm. um, Boskags and, and things like that. And we did originals as well. And the goal to be playing in bars all the time, is that... The goal was probably to record, but we were all happy. We were making 150 bucks a week or whatever, and we had steady work and uh, a van, and, and it was didn't really go much farther than that. It was just part of a process. Like, I was aiming to be a studio guy. I'd wanted to be a studio guy since when I was a kid, and they used to play uh, the ads on TV for KTEL Records, and it was for... <laughs> A hundred hits by a hundred stars or something. It was all on one album, like the grooves were <laughs> so thin. But uh, but it was they weren't done by the original artists. Right. And I would listen to them, and I'd go, I want to be that guy that's playing the copy of that song because I can do that at least that good. I will get at least that good. Wow. And so I wanted to be a recording guy. And we had, my dad was a tape recorder freak and everything. So we had tape recorders down our basements and, I figured out how to make sound on sound and on our old uh, thing, and so I'd tape uh, songs off the radio and then open up the other track and play along with them and stuff, and that, I was just a little kid. So I had that uh, wanting to work with professionals and get it on tape feeling for a long, long time. So you never thought of it as, I want to make my own record and be in the studio that way. You no. thought it would be better to be a cover band doing K-Tel I just wanted to be the guy, yeah, that got that job to play that song that wasn't in the original band because I'd hear them and I would go, uh, I'm going to be able to do that, no problem. So, wow, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, but there was no way I could get to Toronto and make a phone call and go, you know that guy that's playing on a KTEL record, I want to take his job? It's not quite like that. It's not easy to be a studio musician. No, it's not. And and so how did you find it when you first went into the studio and, and did the guitar solo or whatever? Well, it's very, that part, that 
was great. I don't remember other than being really nervous, but if I'm not nervous, then I'm not having any fun. So that was great. Uh, but um, when I finally got, I started doing jingles at Grand Avenue Studio in uh, Hamilton um, with Danny Lanois and, and, and uh, his brother Bob and, and those kind of things. So I sang and or played on probably 200 jingles for local uh, car dealerships and, uh, you know, malls and, and things like that. And uh, we were there all the time doing that. And also playing on a show called Smith & Smith, which is, <laughs> that's um, Steve Smith who became Red Green. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I did that for three seasons. And that's back at around the same time. That was all done at Grand Avenue Studios. So all of a sudden I'm a studio guy and I'm reading music. And I'd only read music, you know, for six months. But I learned, taught myself how to do it. And it was my ear that got me through once again. We did three seasons of that. So it's very stressful because you, you have to please the guy that's behind the glass if he's looking for something that uh, you're not playing you've got to adapt on the spot you can't hold up the thing and it's a, it's a but I love that because I had uh, made a point of becoming versatile while I was learning how to play the guitar there was friends of mine that hated me for the fact that I would be in a band playing Jimi Hendrix but then when they caught me in the record store I'd have a Hendrix album on top of a James Brown album and I'd be snug- smuggling the James Brown album out of the store because they would think I was a wuss because I was listening to funk or something hmm. like so I w- was learning all of that stuff and, and I had to pull from all of that stuff in the studio you can't just know one thing in the studio and be a session guy because it just won't happen so when me. did you start this the studio session gig well studio session thing was 19 uh, whenever Sultans of Swing came out, whatever year that was. I think it was like 78 or something okay. like somewhere in there. And so, because uh, uh, the, the phone rings, it's an old friend of mine from Hamilton, and he says, there's a TV show, you want to play guitar on it? And I went, of course I do, because at that point I was between bands, and and it was like, it was not all gravy for me, this, this story. Like I, I got to a point after Stingery had broken up, that you know, I was answering or going to auditions out of the uh, either the buy and sell or the uh, <laughs> newspaper, and you know, like doing things like not even getting a, uh, the audition for an Elvis cover band and stuff like that. Like, it was pretty down. So then the the phone rings and all of a sudden I'm driving to Hamilton from uh, Toronto doing this television series. So um, that's how that happened. It was just a phone call from a friend of mine from before. So you obviously proved yourself and. Yes. Other opportunities. He, well, and we liked each other a lot, and he knew that I was capable of just running in and playing with a band and not having to practice with them. I just sort of sit in. So that's the kind of mentality and, and uh, mindset you have to have if you're going to be a session guy. What else is important? I mean, obviously, you must be able to create different kinds of sounds. There's sounds. Well, it's everything, just everything you would think of, the, the sound and the feel and the people breathing down your neck and uh, saying stupid things like you know, play more orange or something like that and you have to sort of go along with it and grit your teeth and play the part and make up things and turn pieces of crap into songs that are, would actually sound good you know like yeah that's a major part of what they would call you in for and I worked with Jack Richardson. He was like my surrogate father for uh, I worked with Jack for years and years and years. I met him 
we're jumping back and forth, but in, in um, the studio stuff was, was the Smith & Smith show at Grand Avenue Studio and the hundreds of jingles. And then when I moved to Toronto, I knew a guy named Johnny Rutledge who was in a band at that point called Shadow Facts, and he's a singer and guitar player that just, I loved him, and he's also a super guy. So I phoned him up, and I knew that he was starting to sing jingles in Toronto and play. Not more, I was... I also sang a lot of jingles too, so that's something people don't know much about, but I also sang as many as I played on. So I asked Johnny how to do that. He says, well, have you done a jingle before? And I said, yeah, I had hundreds of them in Hamilton. And he went, well, how much did you make? And I told him, and he went, oh my God, you gotta start making, <laughs> making more money than that. So put a tape together and send them to these people. And he gave me a list of people. I sent my demo tapes out and uh, you know, Months went by, and then one day the phone rang, and somebody asked me to do a jingle. And, of course, uh, they asked me if I knew how to play classical guitar, gut string guitar. And I went, you know what? This is the very first time I've ever been asked to play a jingle, and I'm going to have to say no, because I can play it, but if you want, like, a flamenco thing or something, I don't want to start off what I want to be a career by doing something I'm not comfortable with. So thanks anyway. And they called me back when it was like a regular wow. session. So lucky me. So at one point you were making $150 a week, being yeah. happy, being in your band. Yep. I presume doing jingle work, studio work pays much better than that? Not at the beginning it didn't, but it was more, it's just a whole different thing. You know, like you're uh, going... You're going to work. You're not packing up the truck and driving to Thunder Bay and right. freezing your ass off in a truck and living in a hole in a hole in the wall and stuff. So you can actually sleep in your own bed. And you go in there and it's air conditioned and there's a recording console. Like it's a whole different thing. It would it's be food. like selling newspapers door to door or working at the place where they make the newspapers that actually has walls and a ceiling and stuff. So that's that's the difference. It's it's. I'm going to say legitimate, but I don't mean it that coldly because I do love the live performance part. Because my playing in the studio wouldn't be the way it is without all the years I put in on the road because I I don't just read music and play the notes. I know what it's like to play that song and to be in a bar and, hear, and know what that guy felt like when he was playing those notes. So that makes you stand out, that kind of experience. That's the 10,000 hours thing. Right. In 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 my world of video, yep. I would do things that I'm passionate about sometimes. And then there are gigs where you're just doing stuff in the corporate or whatever and you're less passionate about. Is that somewhat equivalent to studio work? And I'm not saying you're not passionate about what you do in the studio. Oh, it's but not somewhat equivalent. It's exactly the way it is. Yes, like you, most of the time it can be mundane, you know. If you just get confident enough to do it, but I always went in there excited and knowing that whatever I recorded that day was going to be on tape and somebody was going to listen to it. It wasn't just playing a great solo in front of uh, a crowd of drunk guys in a bar and it just going into the ether and never ever to be heard again. And I played some solos back then, as I'm sure every musician has that I'd pay money to hear them again, but they're gone. But when you're in the studio, there she is, you know, so... That's a big difference. Yeah. The, doing your own stuff. In 84, you got a Juno for the most That was 83 or 84, right? yeah. yeah. I did not win. Alfie Zappacosta beat me out, but I was right up there. But more for, I mean, it's surprising to me 
Well, I shouldn't say that. Yeah, the vocalist. Yeah, the vocalist. Oh, the absolutely. But then, you know, Leonard Cohen won Best Male or Most Promising one year. So anything can happen. And what did that mean to you to get that nomination? Well, I was in uh, living in Stouffville at the time, and um, the phone rang. Uh, oddly enough, two doors down, uh, a girl lived there, worked at my record label. It was just ridiculous. So she phoned me up and goes, uh, congratulations. And I went, for what? And she went, well, you're up for a Juno Award. And I, it was just weird to hear that because I had no concept that I'd be up for an award for my record. And then I said, what's it for? You know, and she, she what's the award for? And she's his most, most promising male vocalist. And that was just a funny moment for me. It was just like an upside down world. But so, you also had a hit single in like the early 80s. I right? did. It was called Dream Away and Danny Lanois produced that. Yeah. And, uh, See, the guys on that record are is Jim Valance is on drums. I played with Jim, and I asked him to play on this record, and he, he's famous for writing all the Brian Adams tunes and yeah. many other things. And uh, Jeff Jones played bass, Jeff from you know Red Rider and Tom Cochran and all that stuff. And um, hearing that back blew my mind, and then... Uh, shopping it around that was part of my job like after I got the tape it was I didn't have a deal so I had to go and shop around but I was working doing sessions for with Walter's wall you know yeah. uh, from Toronto I played on went up to Morin Heights and did two great albums with him in 1980 that was sort of the start of my great decade meeting Donnie Triano and Walter Zwall and Long John Baldry and Danny Lanois and it was just everything came together then I I was I was confident, I was angry, I was like motivated, I was uh, not I'm not even not desperate. I was like just I'm not was not going to stop until that this happened cuz everything was right there. So But that's I'm curious what as to you had a hit single, you got this nomination. Yeah. You're working and I, I presume at that around that time you started working with the Irish Rovers. That's right. I decided to get off the road in 81, even though I had a hit single out. I, you know, friends of mine were phoning me and saying, you've got to come out west. You're, you know, all I hear is your song on the radio and stuff. I've never played that song live in my life. Like, really? No, no. I had no desire to go. Like, I was a huge Steely Dan fan back then from the first record. But right then, when they decided to stop touring, whatever, I thought, good on you guys, because that's a... That's a whole other thing. Like that takes away from your life, and it's hard to write, and it's hard to live a life with, uh, you know, knowing friends and things like that because you're touring all the time. So I decided to do that, and be a little bit uh, more in the weeds, and just let the record uh, talk for itself. So the, I didn't get the nomination for that. I got the nomination for the album I did at Phase One with Paul Gross um, producing. But did you? So you said not to pursue more of a solo career at that point? Mm -mm. Yeah, I had no desire whatsoever. Wow. Yeah, to be out there. I just wanted to be this studio guy that uh, I happened to have a record at the same time. It was just a wonderful addition to what all the other great things were going on in my life. You know, like I was the, uh, at that, the same point that my record came out, I was playing on the Fraggle Rock show, you know, so right. I was... I was there for three or four years working there, you know, with those people and you know, talk about pressure. You know, Jim Henson is standing behind the glass and whatever. It was big leagues. Right. And um, so I didn't want to leave that, you know, like I could, it was, it wasn't even an either or thing. Like, do you want to 
have a little uh, 45 that's being played on the radio, drop everything that's it within your grasp right now and get in a truck with a band and travel around the country playing that song live. Like I had already done that, even though it wasn't my song. That meant nothing to me. I just wanted to pursue what I wanted to. I was happy the radio airplay was great and all that, but I chose the right thing, and that, but that's what I was going for. I wanted to stay home and record. That's interesting. I mean, mm. I, it seems different to me. I mean, it seems like... Yeah, a, I, no, I, no, yeah I don't want to be a rock star. I never did. Or the ego. Like no. It wasn't about the ego. I have an ego. Don't don't let me uh, fool you that way. But it goes in another direction. It's not me, 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 watch me. It's, right. it's uh, listen to me, more like that. Wow. Mm-hmm. So when you do this, and you've done a lot of session work. Mm-hmm. Sorry, with other musicians. Yes. How? What's the different mindset of doing that versus doing um, commercial work? Well... Uh, you get more time when you're doing like if you were working on a record project or mm-hmm. something like that. Jingles, you've got an hour or three hours and whatever, and you bang it off like there's a not. It's a whole other trip. Like especially if I'm playing guitar, I play in the in the rhythm section, and we put down the bed track in 20 minutes or half an hour because it's not really about that. It's about so- selling the product. So. If I'm singing a jingle, it's different. Like then it's me standing in front of the mic with a million guys that can't make up their minds about anything, <laughs> staring at me from behind the glass. That's the scariest part of anything I've done, and uh, and singing. So that that that's the difference between um, like and making a record. The the pressure is there, and you know that. Um, the the end result is there. You the product is everything, and that product being that band or that artist you're working with. Most of the time, in my situation, I'd be hired to add something to a, an existing track. You know, so I right. go in and sit by myself in the room and uh, play along with a record. And, and there I am. I'm down in my mom's basement playing along with the Beatles records on the tape. Right. So I'm so comfortable with that. Is it scenario. easy to get to that headspace or that, for that me, place? Yeah, for, for me, it is. It's automatic for me, and, that, and that's great. Like, it's not like I'm relaxed. Like, I'm still, you know, my my hair's up on my arms and everything most of the time, or my brain is wide open because I'm not there. Like, if, if you asked Mark Knopfler or Jimi Hendrix or somebody with a signature sound to play a solo on your record, you would expect it to sound like, that when you played it back you know any joe on the street would go wow they got knopfler to play on the record what i do is adapt to the song and it it, that's uh, why there's a lot of stuff out there that nobody would have a clue that i'm playing on you know that that tommy tedesco guy from um, the wrecking crew movie Mm -hmm. whatever it's along that lines you know like mike francis my buddy who helped me get into this jingle thing and was a great guitar player and a great friend of mine and made me feel comfortable. Same thing. Mike would go, would go back in the eighties when we would do four or five jingles a day and movie scores and everything, you know, you'd pack up your stuff and you'd play uh, a, a, a funk tune for a Kleenex commercial. And then, then you'd uh, go and work on some guy's record for four hours who was doing a, a blues album or a, rock album or whatever and you'd have to turn into that person and whatever and it's so much fun 
doing that. It's like being an actor. I don't. I just don't have to change clothes, but I'm changing mindset and uh, was, was there from ever, other sources. Ever time that you couldn't get into that role? Like, was there ever time when? Fortunately, not, because this is where the ego comes in. Like, I won't quit, and I'll push myself until I get it right. And I never. I don't remember ever being anybody saying uh, thanks anyway. You know, it's been great, but we'll call you later. I never got that. Oh, yeah. I presume the most proudest thing you've done is probably your own stuff. But outside of that, in studio session work, can you share with me one or two things that you've done that you're really, really proud of? I can't pick uh, anything in particular. And if, if if I looked at what I played on, I could probably say yeah. Like there's people like Lisa Price who is a story in itself you should interview her and long john baldry and walter's wall and uh would think about the fraggle rock show or i would think about days where uh well we'd record like 52 songs in three days or something for these things just going crazy and stuff and then me and jack going in just me and jack so there's the engineer and then jack and then me i'm in the in the control room with my guitar and uh them just rolling the tape and me playing overdubs and guitar parts and solos and stuff on 52 tracks in about three hours like just getting in the zone and going and then and jack laughing and all of us laughing our heads off because it's going so well like i'm just in this zone and so is jack and they're okay that song's done wow that song's done wow that song okay change the change the reel put on another reel and go again and then at the end of the show it's like you just did the whole series in four hours you know kind of thing and that's that's the kind of uh, things that make me smile right there like hearing my song on the radio is one thing i can picture the day i recorded it and it's the first time i, I played piano on a record it's all those little things and every story i have is a little memory like but it's it's more to me about the like the uh i think more about the fun or the something weird that happened during the session not the actual recording of it interesting yeah tell me about working with david clayton thomas which yes. you did recently did you tour with him as well and i did i did and that was another beautiful thing and thank you for bringing up david he's got an awesome record out right now by the way um i'm not on it even that's how good it is <laughs> Um, David Clayton Thomas, how did that work? So the Dexters, yeah, backed up these, uh, the Juno uh, Awards show, 1996, magical year. Um, it was a, a, like a Hall of Fame awards show in mm-hmm. Toronto. And on that show were uh, Dominic Trano, Ronnie Hawkins, David Clayton Thomas, John Kay from Steppenwolf, Michelle Phillips and Denny Doherty from the Mamas and the Papas. Um, and John Sebastian, <laughs> and I got to play and meet and hang and tell jokes and laugh and eat, whatever with all of those people that night, and we played great. And uh, that night, Clayton played, uh, David Clayton Thomas played a blues tune, and I whipped off a solo, and he turned around and gave me a big, big smile, and then, like, the next day he called me so uh wow. that's how that happened i just right place at the right time and i happened to whip off a solo that he liked and he's a blues freak <laughs> so this is where my blues guy comes in not my r&b or my rock guy because i'd been listening to blues since music village that little store in burlington that i hung out at and skipped school 
Ed McCready, the owner there, was a blues freak, and I grew up with the British blues. So I thought that like when the Cream album came out and they played uh, Spoonful or something like that, to me, that was their tune. Like they wrote that tune, whatever, and Ed would go, you idiot LaBarge, here's here's what Spoonful is. So he'd pull out the original Spoonful. You know, or born under a bad sign, that kind of thing. Like, uh, and so he pulled, he gave me the the Albert King album that has born under a bad sign and crosscut sob, personal manager, that kind of thing. That was where I fell in love with blues, and I have the knack, and this is a very important part of what my talent is, not only playing by ear, but I have the knack of uh, like being a sponge, and um, so I can absorb things out of a record and they'll stay in my brain and it will be the not the notes per se but that the essence of the feel of that person I can try to crawl inside their soul when I'm listening to them if they hit me like that and I can pull that out 25 years later if somebody asks me to play an Albert King wow. solo I'm not just going oh I think he uses this sound and he played this note and whatever I'm like in that record sitting with Steve Cropper and all that stuff. So that's what I feel in my mind. And I pull Donnie Torano out of my head every time I play. And so that's where I pull from, all these albums that I've, whatever. So back to Clayton. So Clayton phoned me up and wanted me to play on a record. And I can't remember which record that, oh, it was, uh, yeah, he was putting a band together uh, to play uh, at the Opera House in Burlington and record a live record. So uh, that's where I joined the band, and we rehearsed for one day and then recorded an album, and it fortunately turned out well. Yeah, and then, you know, I just did like a couple of gigs with him. He, he doesn't tour a lot because he doesn't need to or, or want to at this point in his life, but um, lots of recording. I must have done four or five albums with him, but I went to Russia with him. I went to Norway and uh, a bunch of other really, really great gigs. I'm very fortunate to know him and and we're very good buddies so it's not like you don't like to tour you just prefer not to live your life that way okay i'll take that <laughs> yeah it's uh, that to me means the same thing uh but uh, like i yeah i'll tour i don't really want to tour no i don't really want to tour you were telling me before mm -hmm. that you're not you're not playing as much anymore that's right. Well, uh, let's see now. Yeah, the, the Dexters played at the Orbit Room for 10 years. I played it just at that club over 1,000 times uh -huh. myself in a couple of different bands. So I've climbed those stairs many, many times. And then I just, uh, we, we kind of broke up because uh, it was like we did our 20th year anniversary or something, you know, and I was just getting tired. Like the people were coming up from the crowd and walking up to me and going my dad knows you you know and stuff like that and that kind of stuff I didn't really want to listen to so because um, they were sort of posing and being young kids and not really listening to the band and I remember a classic night of me standing up there like Alex Lifeson but let's go to Alex Lifeson for a second Alex Lifeson is one of my best friends and he's like Donnie Triano or Doug Riley he has no pretensions he will do anything to help you out at any time, and I love him to death, and he, I just was drawn to him, too. We were drawn to each other, so I, I'm lucky that way, too. I can't forget about Alex. He's crazy that way. So back to the, the Orbit Room 20th anniversary, or 15th, one of them, 
Alex and I are up on stage tuning up, getting ready to play because he's co-owner of that club. Right. So we're tuning up, getting ready to play, and there's, a, you know, the chairs are like two feet away from the stage, right? And so there's about four or five 20-somethings sitting in, the, in that uh, table looking beautiful and handsome and everything else. And, uh, and so I, I was tuning up, and I looked over, and one of the girls, I saw her mouth this. She pointed at Alex and I, and at, to her girlfriend, she said, who are those guys? And that, at that point, I just sort of said, maybe it's time that I should think about not playing here anymore. So, because that was enough for me at that point. So I just said, I'm going to take a break. And uh, so I semi, kind of semi-retired. I, I, you know, I was playing the odd little jam gig with friends of mine and whatever, and enjoying the solace. And then... Um, I got uh, over the last like five years or whatever, I started getting uh, weirdness in my left arm. I have got something. I fell off my roof in 2000 and it really hurt my neck. But that didn't affect me up until like two years, three years ago. And now all of a sudden it's affecting my arm and my hand. Wow. So I've got this like big tendonitis in my left hand right now. So I, I'm not even playing at the moment. Uh, but it it's going to get better. I've got all sorts of things I'm doing for it, so it will improve. But it was sort of a self-imposed retirement rather than uh, voluntary, and that that makes me a little bit angry because it's it's not fair. But you know, I think about Donnie Triano getting cancer and dying, and that's not fair either. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm better off than that at this point. So I'm not playing now. You're not even picking up your guitar? No, there's no sense in doing that right now because my hand feels really fat and stupid and everything. It doesn't, like, I know what I'd like to play, but my fingers won't go there right now. So, yeah, it's like, I know it's like a movie, but I'm hoping it will get better because I have a lot of guitars and I'd like to play them. (laughs) But I'm not, like, I don't sit in the corner and cry because I can't play the guitar. Like, I played it a lot and I can play the guitar in my head. So that's sort of how I play the guitar anyway. And, uh... So that physicality of it is is okay with me, you know, right now. But it is getting very uh, long in the tooth trying to get this thing under control because it's been two or three years now. Wow. I so know. this is probably the first time in your life since you were 13 that you haven't... Since 11. 11. Yeah, since I haven't been able to do something that I felt like doing. Like, yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm so it, sorry it, well, to hear it's, that. It's, yeah, I am sorry to hear it too, but it's not it's not as sad as it sounds. Like if like I say, if I was 30 and this happened, I would have jumped off of uh, the bridge or something. Like I mean, now fortunately, if it's going to happen, that's fine. And if I, I talked to so many friends when I got this, and I was a little embarrassed at first cuz you you always have that uh, paranoid thought like when I was doing jingles all the time, that the phone is going to stop ringing at some point, right? I've always been waiting for that point. So you're still paranoid even at the age of, you know, 60 to tell your friend you got a sore hand, you know, because you're still thinking that uh, Paul McCartney's going to phone you up someday, right? Or at least a chance of it. So, uh, but then as I reach out and talk to people that play guitar or whatever, they've all got stories. Like I've heard friends of mine that didn't play or couldn't play for 10 years, and I never knew that because I wasn't hanging with them and right. following their career or whatever. But it's rampant. And I, I go to high school reunions and nobody's got hand problems, but like it's all hips and knees and it's all that talk now, right? It's unbelievable. We're not talking about the new Hendrix record or something. It's like, <laughs> man, you wouldn't believe what happened to my knee last week or whatever. So it is all of that. 
So I've got, but they're all very concerned about my hand because they know that they like to listen to me play too. So it's flattering. And uh, there's a bit of pressure involved that way too because I sort of feel like I have to get better, you know, but it's, it's motivating too. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's weird. It's like we're talking at the end of a movie or something where the guy loses his hand and then but it's it all sad. But it's not down, sad at all. Oh, good. Not sad in the least. Um, when you look back on your life, mm -hmm. tell me, tell me how, how you view this journey. I would do it all over again. I really would. It's been uh, like the, I, I'm still great friends with uh, guys I played with in my very first band right up to, you know, there's a, some of them that aren't here anymore, but very few people who I uh, uh, broke ties with, you know, and um, no, I, I just love it. I loved uh, playing high schools and bars and, oh man, I know, and, and all my recording career. It's a big story. I could write a book. I really could. And it, I, I, nobody would read it, but... <laughs> But I'm like one of those guys. It just I, I, you know, when I look back, I've got holy crap, you know, like I did quite a lot of stuff, and uh, it's what I wanted to do. So you can't have a better ending to a story than that. I did what I wanted to do. So you've never actually done any other job than music. I had a few day jobs when I lived in Hamilton, but I played at nighttime. So no, I haven't. So you've never experienced that other world. Uh, well, I did enough to know that it's really hard getting up in the morning and going to that place. You know, I don't mind getting up early in the morning and going to a recording studio, right. but I didn't want really like the uh, work-a-day world, no. Wow. No, it's not for me. That's crazy that this little kid who watched Beatles on TV said, that's what I want to do, and you've done it. Ain't it the truth? It's very weird. I feel weird even telling the story, but it's true. <laughs> That's great. It is great, and I, I'm thankful for it. So having a sore hand is a very small price to pay. Well, you know what? It's been a real pleasure. And likewise, chatting Mac with you. Oh, and nice to meet you finally, and Bruce. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. You're welcome. And I hope your hand gets better, and as soon as it does, you have to call me so we can come and watch it. Nice. That's a deal. Great. Thanks. Thanks.